Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Hacker podcast. I'm delighted to be able to explore self-leadership today with global best-selling author Andrew Bryant. But before we do that, it's the Leadership Hacker news. And it's almost sad news today that I'm sharing. And whilst it is sad, we can also celebrate the life of Jack Welsh, who died recently at the age of 84. Jack Welsh was a titan American businessman who transformed General Electric from an average performer into America's most valuable company at one point. He ran the US conglomerate from 1981 until 2001 and was once named Manager of the Century for his achievements by Fortune magazine. He was nicknamed Neutron Jack for his cost-cutting, ruthless approach to efficiency and later became a best-selling author and a confidant to many US presidents. And for some, Jack Walsh was not a leader or perceived to be a leader at all and didn't exude leadership behaviours. I would, however, encourage our listeners to consider the backdrop to our working lives and culture when Jack started out his leadership journey. Our world has changed greatly since the late 1970s and 80s when Jack started his revolution at GE. Some of the behaviours may not be appropriate today that he displayed back in 1970 and 80, but were still cutting edge and shaped and changed the way that people did things. What we can recognise him for was his famous brand of energy and leadership that created his legendary status. He had a four E's and a P philosophy which really shot him to fame on the global leadership arena. And for those of you less familiar with Jack's four E's and a P, let me just explain. Energy. Jack said, energy is the ability to thrive on action and relish change. People with a positive energy are generally extroverted and optimistic. They make contribution and friends easy. They're people who don't complain about working hard. They love to work. They also love to play and have an overall lust for life. So ask yourself this question. Do you bring energy as a leader to your team every day, all day? The next E is energize. He was quoted as saying, this is the ability to get others revved up. People who can energise can inspire their team to take on the impossible and enjoy doing it. The ability to energise is apparent in some with an in-depth knowledge of their business who sets a powerful and personal example with strong persuasion skills. So again, let's consider, do you energise the people that work with you to a point that they want to work with you? The next E was edge. Edge to Jack meant having the courage to make tough yes or no decisions. Smart people can assess a situation from every angle, but smart people with edge know when to stop assessing, make a tough call, even without information. And I think what Jack was talking to then was gut feel or intuition. And as a leader, it's essential for us to pay attention to that intuition. But do we? The last E was execute. And being able to execute meant having the ability to get the job done. And Jack would say, 
People can have energy, energise everyone around them and make tough calls, but still not get over the finishing line. Being able to execute is a unique and distinct skill. And he would describe it as a person knowing how to put decisions into action, pushing them forward to completion through resistance, chaos, or any unexpected obstacles. People who execute well know that execution in business is about getting results for everybody. I wonder, do we really drive for the execution of business results with clarity and thought? And Jack would wrap it up with the letter P, which stood for passion. People with passion have heartfelt, deep, authentic excitement about work, Jack would say. They really care to their bones about their colleagues, their employees and their friends, and they love to learn and grow. And they get a huge kick out of people around them in doing the same. So I'd like to encourage you with a final reflection, thinking about Jack's four E's and a P. Do I bring an intense enthusiasm to all the aspects in my life? That's the Leadership Hacking News. Rest in peace, Jack Welsh, and thank you for the inspiration. Today's guest is best-selling author of two books on self-leadership. He's a TEDx speaker and an international coach on self-leadership, Andrew Bryant. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So folks might know you as the author of Self-Leadership, but they may not know much about the man behind the story. So tell us a little bit about you and how you've arrived at where you've arrived at. So I'm English by birth. I'm Australian by passport. I'm Singaporean by residence and I'm Brazilian by wife. So wow. that explains a little, yeah, that explains a little bit of my sort of multicultural outlook. Um, Growing up in England, I went to an English grammar school. I was a pretty good science student. I was destined to do medicine, but uh, the government decided grammar schools were elitist and we got combined with the girls' high school just before my A-levels. And uh, somehow I got distracted and I didn't get the grades for medicine. So uh, my first degree is in physiotherapy and I graduated way back in 1982. Um, I worked a couple of years in hospitals. I worked at University College Hospital London, and then I did what most male physios do is I got involved in sport. I was uh, on the medical team of a first division soccer club. I worked with the Ballet Rombe, I worked with Olympic athletes, and this was the mid-1980s before positive psychology, sports psychology, any of this stuff had been invented or discovered. And so those of us who were curious about what makes the difference in performance and started to study things like neurolinguistic programming and hypnosis and visualization and goal setting. And so I'm sort of one of the grandfathers of that movement into how that became coaching as we know it today. And that's part of a, a, a lot of our work today in, in helping other people is we, we kind of fall back on some of those tactile foundations that are probably born in that sports uh, physiotherapy psychology genre, right? It, well, it is. I mean, the I, I actually I was going to trans, transfer from physio to medicine, but I'm glad I didn't. Um, and because physiotherapy is a very pragmatic science, and it, it it teaches you the art of observation. You know, you spend hours, you know, looking at people's running gait or uh, how they throw a ball, and and it's based on biomechanics, which is you know very science based. And that skill in observation and listening is, is core to coaching. And I think it's core to leadership as well. So I, yeah. I think it was a very good discipline. Then I studied traditional Chinese medicine, which is a systems-based process. And, and the distinction between Chinese and Western medicine, Western medicine is very, um, very uh, Aristotelian with there's a cause and there's an effect. 
in Chinese medicine, there's, there's often multiple causes. So there's a confluence of situations the results. So in Chinese medicine, you don't get sick because it's hot. You get sick because it's hot and damp. You don't get sick because it's cold. You get sick because it's cold and windy. You know, anybody living in England understands exactly what that means. And so, so, but it gives you a systems thinking. And then when Peter Senge came out with you know, the, the fifth discipline, I went, well, this makes sense because uh, this looking at the interrelationship between forces was very much my training. And so, the, the observation of that, I think, gave me a good grounding to make me an effective leadership coach. Getting up to the stage of you writing your book on self-leadership, what was it that created the energy and the focus to help you uh, put pen to paper? Uh, simple answer, failure. Um, so um, I moved to Australia with my physiotherapy and my um, acupuncture ideas. And I'd set up a chain of clinics. So I was a successful entrepreneur. I'd focused my energy on a holistic wellness center and invested a huge amount of money. I had this great idea that, you know, gyms and should actually be for people that need it, as opposed to those guys that have kind of been <laughs> lifting too many weights. You can't, yeah. kind of wanted to go up to those really beefcake guys and say, hey, you're cooked, you can leave. <laughs> but obviously, that would be a you know, a, a dangerous thing to do. Anyway, so, but I, I had this vision that, you know, the health centers should be for people that need to be there. Every, you know, ordinary people who, you know, just want to get fit and healthy. And and we need to create an environment where they felt comfortable. But I was years ahead of my time. And then the fitness craze hit Australia in around about two, 1999, 2000. And the cheap, you know, you buy a membership, but there's no servicing. They took off. And I was charging $49 a month. And, and uh, sorry, $49, uh, yeah, $49 a month, and they were charging $49 a year. So I, I went out of business in 2000 and, and ended up $300,000 in debt with no assets, literally living in a backpacker's hostel, you know, paying the rent uh, day by day. And, and it really does focus. Now, obviously, I went through a period of self-criticism and self-doubt, self-judgment, all of the above. But when I kind of came out of the self-pity party, I sat up on the Blue Mountains and I thought, well, if I'm going to rebuild my life, what do I want to do that's important and significant? I don't want to do what I've already done. I was offered a, a job setting up a, a physio clinic and I went, I want to do something different. And I thought, what do I love to do? And I loved the coaching. I loved opening people's minds up. And I went, okay, how can I go about that? And, you know, what's the methodology I'm going to use? And so that's where the research started. Um, then I, I got a client. I got my first big client that um, enabled me to go in and work with his management team. He said, you know, you've helped my sports team improve. Now come work with my management team. And I didn't really have a, I didn't really didn't have a system. I, I, you know, I just did the observation thing. I went, okay, what do they need to do to improve? And, and I got results and that was great. But then I had that chip on my shoulder. I thought, well, well I'm not, not chip is the wrong word, the insecurity. I thought, well, I need the degree to back this up. So I went off to do an MBA. And and I remember arguing with the lecturer on organizational behavior. And uh, he said, well, you know, you've got some good ideas. Why don't you go write your own book? And the rest, as they say, is, the rest history. is history. So yes. in the book, Self-Leadership, you define self-leadership as the practice of intentionally influencing thinking, feeling, and actions towards your objectives. That's quite a strong statement. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, that's, yeah, that's the shortest version. The, the thing about self-leadership is I'm not the person that invented the term. In fact, the very, uh, the very first researcher was a guy called Charles Mance who, who coined the term self-leadership. But the 
you know, the, the, the concept of self-leadership goes back to the Roman Stoics. It goes back to the Greek philosophers. It goes back to Lao Tzu, uh, influencing, you know, others is, is strength, but influencing self is, is true power. So the concept in itself is not original. It's this, it's this human reality around that, you know, we, we have some sense of personal power if we take ownership. And, and so it was very much the ownership of what can you take ownership of? And you can actually take ownership of your thinking. We all have thoughts, but do the thoughts have us or do we have the thoughts? We all have emotions, but are we having the emotions or are the emotions having us? Now, if you've ever been in a fury about something, you know that the emotions had you. If you've ever been really sad about something, you've been gripped by the emotion. You were not in control. But when we go, oh, I'm angry about this. What, why am I angry about this? What's, what's driving that anger? What's, what's that really about? Then we're in, we take that step back into the observer place and that gives us choice. And, and, you know, that's the heart of Stephen Covey's work. You know, the seven habits of highly effective people was the proactivity between idea and action, that there is a choice point that we have as human beings. And in my experience as a coach, Andrew, and I'm sure you see this a lot with your clients too, is most of my work is in the bit in the middle, the gap between the idea and the action and the evaluation of how you get people to move forward. How, how has that been part of what you do right now? Just before I came on this, I, I, I was talking to a CEO of a pharmaceutical company who wanted me to coach one of his executives. And uh, uh, I'd, pre I'd been interviewed by his head of HR you know, before I spoke to him. She was obviously playing buffer, so they didn't waste his time. And then his opening statement was, tell me about yourself, uh, because I haven't had time to read the, the, the briefing material. And I kind of wanted to do an inner groan, because that means I've got to tell my entire life story, which I'm doing again on this podcast. <laughs> but, because it's a long life story, and I have to edit it a bit. And I, you know, I, I just don't want to come across, it's like, why are you a different coach? And I'm like, well, how do I go about that? And and I, I really took this point that, you know, there's, a, you know, the classic coach comes from the inner game and the outer game. And you'll be familiar with a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Sure am, yeah. And, yeah, and, and that is that coaching is about the inner landscape. Outer coaching is how you hold the tennis racket, how you serve the ball. The inner coaching is how you think about yourself as a tennis player. And with leadership coaching is how do I think about myself as a leader? I mean, just this week, I was coaching a CEO of an organization. It's a very successful CEO. I've, I've coached him in other organizations. He's been parachuted into this company that uh, uh, joint, some venture capitalists have bought. And he's stressing himself out because he's built this runway and he's attached his ego. Uh, when I say built the runway, built the runway to, you know, profitability in a certain amount of time and a certain number. And he's attached his ego to that. And if it doesn't work, he's feeling like a failure. And, and so the way he's created a mental schematic of that is his inner world is driving his outer communication. And he's actually, you know, the coaching was to help him not spread doubt against his troops, you know, amongst his troops, because he's having these doubts. But as the leader, yeah. they're his doubts. They're not their doubts. And, right. and they're only doubts because He's made such a big deal out of this. Now, if, if the company burnt to the ground, he would rise from the ashes and he would lead another organization. He's a very successful, very competent, very intelligent individual. But the coaching is around that gap between his inner thinking and his, his execution. In this case, his speaking was not as aligned and motivational and inspirational as it could have been. 
So some folk, when they, when they hear you talk about focus on self, focus on me, some people might actually see that rather than being self-leadership as almost being a little selfish. Before I go there, I, let me go somewhere else, right? Um, and yeah, here's something I do with people. As I say, look, you know, if, if somebody if somebody drives upside, outside the restaurant or the hotel in the Maserati or the Lamborghini and the Ferrari gets out, you know, after having revved the engine so that everybody's paid attention to them and then throws the keys to the valet, do they have a big ego or a small ego? Well, I'm not going to, don't answer this. <laughs> most, <laughs> most, people, most, most people listening will say big ego, but actually from a psychological perspective, their ego is fragile because they're engaging in egocentric behaviors, right? Uh, look at mm-hmm. me, look at me, right? So, Egomaniacal, egocentric behaviors are based on a need to feed an ego. When somebody has a healthy ego, a healthy sense of self, they don't need the attention. They don't need to throw their, their keys at the valet. They could turn up on a bicycle and they'd be fine because they know who they are, right? So actually, when you do the work on yourself, you're a better human being to be in relationship with others, right? Like so that. ego... Yeah, ego, actually, Carl, you talked about ego means just sense of self. Egocentricity is, is, is a fragile ego. Look at me, look at me, I'm not okay. And, you know, a relationship should always be a gestalt where the, the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts. If, if two broken people are trying to get together and, and say, you complete me, as the line from uh, the, the, the movie goes, um, yeah, if two broken people meet each other trying to make one complete person, they're codependent. When two people have got their stuff together, meet, they create a relationship that has things over and above themselves. So self-leadership is not selfish because when we have taken care of ourselves, we have all the energy to focus on other people. We can listen. We can help. And and the simplest one is, is a metaphor that, that precedes me, but I, I use it as well. And that is if you're on the airplane and the oxygen mask does fall from the ceiling, you're supposed to put it over your nose and mouth first before assisting others, because if you don't look after yourself, you're useless to anybody else. I like that metaphor, and it's uh, it's incumbent of all leaders mm. to be mentally and physically fit, as well as you know emotionally fit to help other people. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I, again, I was talking to somebody this morning, different person from what I was saying earlier, and. Um, and he was saying, you know, I've, I've invested in myself and, and I'm doing this and I'm being more recognized at work. And I've said, well, that's, you know, you, wherever I go, there I am, right? Personal mm. development is going to make you a better leader. Personal development is going to make you a better worker or coworker or husband or wife. So again, we're back to this is not, you know, working on yourself, um, is not selfish because everybody else benefits. Um, um the, the biggest, compliment you can do for somebody is to turn up and authentically be yourself right if you're if you're hiding behind some mask or you're playing some game and then manipulating them into whatever bizarre reality you have then you're really not doing anybody a favor and of course people can spot when people aren't being authentic we get that gut feel don't we we're not sure where it comes from but we just know it's not real well, we're very good at picking up congruency and incongruency. So if there's an incongruency, that's what we pick up, and it gives us that, that squirmy feeling, as you say, in the gut. And, but, but being authentic is, is, you know, is, uh, is a conversation in itself, right? You know, if I, if I, uh, how authentic are you allowed to be? 
you know, certain world leaders today are, you would say they're very authentic, but they're rubbing a lot of people up the wrong way. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, right. we, 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 it, to your point about selfish, selfishness is the human condition is, yes, we need to develop ourselves, but we always operate in some kind of tribe or group because the human being is a social animal. And, and so, but just because I've got my stuff together and, and I don't have it every day, right? But on most days I, you know, at least I have the tools and the strategies to, to lead myself, right? But I can't assume that the person I'm talking to has got their stuff together. They, they may be operating from a, a strange mental model or, or mental schema. They may be having some insecurities. They, they may be dealing with some trauma. I don't know what's going on in their life, right? So I can turn up and authentically be me. But sometimes I might have to dial it down a little bit because, you know, I don't know the environment I'm in. I don't have a relationship with this individual. So in your book, Self-Leadership, you talk about a couple of characters in there to help um, people get through some metaphor, metaphorical thinking, drivers and passengers. Tell us a little bit about how, how that comes about. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple metaphor. I mean, I think um, uh, I think we most people who can drive like to drive, particularly if you've got an open road and a nice car. And I think sometimes it's nice to be in a path, passenger and sit in the back. Uh, you know, when I fly into a foreign city to speak, you know, I'm picked up by a by a car and driven to the hotel. So both both are are appropriate in the right context. But if you're being a passenger in parts of your life where you need to take control, then that's a problem. And so it's the awareness of, do I need to take ownership and responsibility of this? Or am I just going to sit in the back and let everybody else drive? And a lot of the times people are going along in life, waiting for instructions. You know, for me, I remember the, the C colon backslash prompt on a, uh, on a DOS computer, you know, it's waiting for input. And a lot of people are like that. They're waiting for instructions. We live in a work environment where we want people who are taking ownership, who are agile, thinking for themselves. Because frankly, if people aren't thinking for themselves, they're going to be replaced by an AI algorithm or some machine learning very quickly. So, you know, you need to look at your life and look at where am I being the passenger and where I'm being the driver. Which brings us to a, to a movie that I do remember, the very first Spider-Man, where Uncle Ben says to Peter Parker, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Great responsibility. However, yeah. However, with great responsibility, stroke ownership, comes great power. When we take ownership for our thinking, feeling, and actions, we start to influence uh, our immediate environment and maybe the environment at large. Um, we don't influence everything. There are, you know, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. That's life. However, the attitude, the mindset of what can I take ownership of? You know, can I be proactive? Can I offer a solution rather than sit there waiting for somebody else to fix it? And that's a huge difference in you know anybody who runs a company or leads a team knows that they have drivers and they have some passengers and they know what they would rather have more of and of course becoming a driver takes practice and persistence and one of the subsets you talk about in the book in order to kind of unlock some of that is personal mastery so from my experience around personal mastery this is one of those things that just never stops it's kind of an asymptote it carries on it's gathers momentum. What role do you see personal mastery playing in people's self-leadership? Well, in the self-leadership um, construct that I use for research, so that you know, my research or my talking is, is linked to other people, um, is that I think in self-leadership, there's three elements, which is self-awareness, you know, do I know what I'm thinking? 
what I'm feeling, self-regulation, which are our habits, right? Um, and I think really personal mastery comes in the area of habits and then self-learning, right? How we're we doing. However, self, when people don't understand what self-leadership is, they extend the definition of personal mastery to include self-learning. Uh, and Peter Senge said that people with personal mastery are in a constant state of learning, which is, which is great. So personal mastery is about living life on purpose, knowing, you know, that the, the self-regulation is doing things in alignment with your vision and your values. And if you continue to do those things, then you will be successful. So if you value health, then you're going to exercise and eat correctly. If you value the relationship, in relationships, you're going to invest in those relationships and you'll have habits and strategies around that. I recently wrote a blog um, where I added uh, the vision, the values and perspectives. And I think that that covers the learning. And this was about our mental models and schemas that we talked about earlier, is that, you know, I think if, if you're going to have personal mastery, particularly in this very interesting world, hashtag post-truth, is that you, you need to recognize your own perspectives so that you're aware of your biases and, and be very um, tolerant, I think, of other people's perspectives. So yeah, that's that, important so, too, isn't it? Yeah. So there's, there's a huge overlap between personal mastery and self-leadership. You could use the terms interchangeably, or if you're, if you're specifically looking at researching the constructs, then uh, personal mastery comes in the self-regulation uh, piece of self-leadership. And in coaching other people, I often have to delve deep into people's inner thoughts to get them to share their thinking and their, their learnings of, of what's taken place. And in the workplace today, it's fair to say that you know, that diversity of thought is not really as common as it could be. Uh, what's your take on diversity of thinking and diversity of thought? Very good. Well, I, I, I think we segued nicely from my previous statements, didn't we, around perspectives. Um, I'm a great fan of diversity and inclusion of thought. So in terms of diversity and inclusion, I'm on the faculty of women and leadership at Singapore Management University. But here we're, here we're only looking at gender, right? There's, there's, we're not looking at orientation or we're looking at age or disability, et cetera. Whereas I think if we took a higher frame and said that diversity and inclusion of thinking gives us better results. And I think most people would agree with that. If you've ever worked on, you know, had a really good brainstorming session or you've got a partner that you, you know, you can you can bounce ideas off and you always end up with a better idea. I've I've co-authored two of the books I've written and and having a co-author looks at something and they challenge you and you go, ah oh, yeah, I could see it a different way. And every time you have different thought processes, I think you as long as you know where you're going, you raise the you raise the standard, right? That, you know, I, I remember when I did my MBA, you know, learning about groupthink, where you know everybody has the same idea and does the same thing, and you know, like the the metaphor of lemmings running off the cliff. So I think if we if we welcome diversity of thought, I was talking to somebody at a at a party at the weekend, and I was bemoaning the fact that I think they stopped teaching debating in schools, or because. Nobody can actually have a discussion about anything anymore. Everybody, you know, jumps into straw man arguments or whataboutism. Nobody can say, oh, that's an interesting point. You know, could you expand on that? And, you know, is there another way of looking at this? And, you know, where's your evidence for that? And you know, the ability to actually, you know, have dialogue without making it personal seems to have evaporated. And what do you think causes that uh, emotional response? 
But the emotional response to people is, is people attach their ego to their ideas and their perspectives. People, remember I said, we own our thoughts. Our thoughts are not us. We own our feelings. Our feelings are not us. Now, because human beings are so tribal, we identify. So a Manchester United supporter is a Manchester United supporter through and through. It's an identity. It may even be a generational identity from grandfather to father to son. And if they meet a Liverpool supporter, there's a problem, right? So they're both members of a tribe, but they are members of a larger tribe if they're both English. So, you know, they, they, they would, anybody who was not English, they would hate the Germans or the, you know, Brazilians or whatever. So we, we have this, this tribal identity and the inability to have discussions at the moment is that so much, you know, in England, you have, you know, you had Brexiteers and Remainers and Americans have got their, de their Democrats and their Republicans is people are very closely identified with the tribes and are failing to step back from that and actually look at the arguments, right? That there's good and bad on both sides. But, but are we, talking about those things. And leaders in particular need to be able to have the intelligence to hold contradictory thoughts at the same time. And one of the, one of the coaching things I do with senior leaders is to get them to argue against it. You know, they say, hey, I'm going to do this. And I say, now I want you to argue against it. And then I want you to argue for it again. And when they've argued against it and then they've argued for it, therefore is much better because they argued against it. It's a great uh, technique of self-coaching too at the time, isn't it? As they're self-reflecting. Yeah. I, I, I think those mental disciplines, and maybe this because I'm 58 years old, I, you know, maybe, maybe it's there. I mean, my son who's 12 is actually very good at art making an argument and I really love, you know, he, he's got some self-leadership and that's great. Um, so maybe I'm just sounding like an old fogey, but it's just, it seems to be, maybe it's the, it's the, the rise of social media. May, I, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, but it does seem to be that the, the ability to be aware of your own position and be okay to look at that without seeing that, feeling like that's a, an attack on your ego. And I guess a lot, a lot of the, the behaviors that we carry through high school, university, and then on to work as leaders is, is merely a learned behavior. And if we keep reinforcing those learned behaviors, we're reinforcing bad habits or we're creating new habits. Uh, and of course, kids and children uh, are in that early stages of learning about leadership. And, and I observe leadership in my son's basketball court on a Saturday morning. And, and for me, leadership is not an age thing or a role thing. It's a behavior. What, what do you think we can learn from from children when it comes to leadership? Well, I, I, like you, I mean, I, I learn from my kids and I watch them learning and I, I you know, watch them taking leadership positions in various things. And, and the first thing you notice, of course, is kids are brilliant modelers. And, you know, as we're growing up, it's, it's a survival mechanism to, to mimic and, and model behavior. And I think we, <laughs> I, I remember driving along when my daughter was very small and, uh, somebody pulled out in front of me and she goes, is he a stupid idiot, daddy? So <laughs> I didn't actually say it, but obviously I, obviously I had probably said it at, at a previous time and she'd learned that and she'd connected the <laughs> behavior right. to the phrase. And, and she was tiny when she said this. Um, and so I think we can learn a great deal. One of the strategies I teach in, in leadership and, and in coaching, of course, is, is feedback. And as a there's a model, I, I don't know whether I came up with it, but uh, the acronym I find is very sticky and, and that is, is fact, impact and future. So the fact is the observation of the reality, the impact is what that behavior is doing, both good and bad, and obviously is the future is the future behavior. And it's, so managers and leaders learn this very quickly. And I, I, I talk about when Tasha, my daughter, was about four, uh, 
coming down the stairs of, of, of the house that we had recently moved into that had lots of stairs. And as we moved into it, I'd said to her, look, if you're coming down the stairs, hold on to the handrail. I was terrified at about four, she would fall. Anyway, I'm walking past the bottom of the stairs. Tasha's coming down and she's not holding on to the handrail. I said, Tasha. She said, yes, daddy. I said, what are you doing? She pauses and says, well, I'm coming down the stairs. And I said, what are you not doing? And she does that cute little, you know, thing that four-year-olds do where she thinks. <laughs> and she says, oh, I'm not holding on to the handrail. So we'd established the facts. And, and she was aware, undeniably, of what her behavior was at that point. So then I asked the impact question, what might happen if you don't hold on to the handrail? And she thought for a moment and she said in her beautiful four-year-old languaging, fall ouch blood. And I said, that's right, fall ouch blood. Do you want fall ouch blood? She said, no, I don't want fall ouch blood. So I said, what are you going to do in the future? And she said, hold on to the handrail. Now, from that moment on, I never had to remind her until she was old enough it didn't matter. And what I say to managers, if I could change the behavior of my four-year-old, and if my four-year-old could understand the current situation, the impact of her behavior and the future behavior, and tell me what she was going to do, what's the problem with your people? And the problem is that you're not doing this. You're expecting your people to know exactly what you're thinking, and you're not really giving them effective feedback. It's a great little model. Love it. I think I'll be using that next time myself too. Thank you for sharing. So at this part of the show, we're going to kind of delve into your top leadership hacks. So if you could just share with the folks uh, listening today, what would be your top three leadership hacks, nudges, tips, ideas? Well, I think obviously I'm going to start with number one, which is to practice self-leadership, which is intentionally influencing your thinking, feeling and actions towards your objectives. And as you do that, developing your personal mastery and therefore become more effective because let's face it if you're going to be a leader you have to be effective so that would be number one number two would be listen for what's important now when you really listen to people talk they tell you what they value it's as if they're broadcasting the pin to their atm the 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 secret code people talk about what they value and as a leader you need to frame all communication in terms of what's important to your listeners. Only then can you influence them to move towards the objectives that you see as leaders. So that would be number two. And my third leadership hack is to give up on perfection in favor of progress. As you take actions, they won't be perfect, but you're making progress as you take action. And then you can use the feedback, as I just shared, fact, impact, future, to make it better because perfection will paralyze you through procrastination. So that's my third tip. Once it's kind of casted back to, uh, we're going to call this hack to attack. There are times all of us could be familiar with in our lives where we've screwed up and got things wrong. And can you share with us maybe the one thing you can recall where it's gone wrong, but you're now using that learning to help you in your forward thinking and your, your future? Yeah, and I would say that in one word, and that's disruption. I already shared with you the story that in 2000, the business model I have was disrupted as low cost health and wellness centers came into Australia. And that disrupted me. And I went through a period of, uh, of discomfort, obviously financial ruin um, and self-seeking. But I disrupted that. And then I decided what was important to me back to my leadership hacks. And, and that pivoted me into speaking, coaching, training. 
Uh, I ended up moving to Singapore because I had some uh, I had some big clients here, one of which was Singapore Airlines, and I built a big training business. I had trainers and I had staff and, and, and an office, and then we had the global financial crisis, and suddenly nobody was spending any money on training and development. And then I had to disrupt myself again. I realized I was working for everybody else. I wasn't doing the thing that I loved. And so I disrupted myself again. I got rid of the office. I got rid of the staff. And I streamlined it so that it was business that I wanted to do because I liked what was important to me was being in front of people and making the change. So having had those two, in 2017, I saw that in moving to a very me-centric business model, that also was massively vulnerable. And I looked forward and I could see that online learning was the future. And I did my first foray into that in 2017. Didn't do very much of it in 2018. 2019, I absolutely put a huge amount of energy into that. So I could coach globally. I recorded group coaching programs and, and turn those into products like my Executive Presence Accelerator, my C-Suite Accelerator programs. So my hack to attack is always be disrupting yourself. And it's also interesting because if you're not disrupting yourself, you're creating comfort and comfort is not helpful when we're looking to progress. No, it's not. I'll agree with you there. Okay. So my final ask of you today, uh, Andrew, is if you could turn back the clock, do a bit of time travel and bump into your 21-year-old self, what would be the one bit of advice that you would give them? You know, I think my greatest lesson over the last few years is to really understand what's meant by the word humility. And I didn't used to like the word because I'm a great believer that we need to be confident. And particularly here in Asia, people mistake um, confidence for arrogance. Um, and and I, I was always very anti this sort of fake humility that people have. But what I realized is that humility comes from the Latin humilitas, which gives us the word grounded, right? It's humus. It means grounded. And, you know, I talked earlier about authentically turning up in relationships. And I think what's made me happier, more effective in my life is getting grounded, is realizing who I am, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, and, and, and operating from that groundedness and not needing to live my life for the acceptance of appreciation of everybody else, uh, whether that's externally or mentally in a psychodrama. You know, often we live our lives for the appreciation of our parents, alive or dead. I know I did in my younger, my youngest 21-year-old self was always thinking, well, you know, would my dad be proud of me? And then a few years ago, I, I, you know, I was in a hospice holding my father's hand as, as he left this world, and he did say to me, I'm proud of you, son. And although it was an absolutely beautiful moment, I did no longer needed it because many, many years before I had learned that I, I needed to be proud of myself with or without my father or with or without anybody else. Now, as you say, what would I have said to my 21-year-old self? I, I mean, between 21 and 41, I spent a lot of time and energy trying to impress people that didn't need to be impressed. So I think that would be, you know, my from the heart sharing to you. Thank you for sharing. That's uh, really appreciate that. So folk are probably wondering, Andrew, how they can get to learn a little bit more about your C-Suite Accelerator, how they can find about your blog and your book. Uh, where would you like them to go? It's very simple. We've been talking about self-leadership, and so go to selfleadership.com. On the homepage, there are obviously at the top navigation bar a link to the blog. Um, 
and there are four buttons. One, if you are interested in, in, in personal coaching, one, if you're an organization and you want you know, a self-leadership culture for your organization, one for the C-suite accelerator, and I can't remember what the fourth one for, but you go there, selfleadership.com, and all the things that we've talked about, the links all just flow off that homepage. Well, Andrew Bryant, thank you ever so much for joining us on the Leadership Hacker podcast today. It's absolutely my pleasure, um, and uh, it's been very enjoyable. Thank you, Steve. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.